Turn to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation 9. Today's Palm Sunday, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, but for today we're going to continue our series in Revelation. Next week we'll take a break from the Revelation series for Easter Sunday to talk about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and then we'll be right back into the Revelation series after that. As we continue this journey through the book of Revelation, we're in the section of the book that's unfolding the judgments of Jesus on Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. We saw the seven seals on the scroll in the throne room of God that the Lamb takes. The Lamb begins to open those seals, and we've, we've seen those seals opened. The seventh seal, when it was opened, that introduced the seven trumpet judgments. Last week, in chapter 8, we saw the first four trumpets, and this week, in chapter 9, we will see the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. We'll spend most of our time this morning on the fifth judgment, just because it takes a little bit more explaining, but we will cover both the fifth and the sixth this morning. So let's read Revelation 9, uh, starting in verse 1. I'll read it straight through. Follow along as I read. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and they had teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is, <clears throat> this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire... And smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. 
The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. All right, well, compared to the first four trumpets, the judgments are now intensifying. The fifth trumpet judgment begins with a star fallen from heaven to earth. The star is a fallen angel, and he's given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, you'll remember from chapter 1 that Jesus has the key to death and Hades. So Jesus is the one giving the key to this fallen angel and allowing him to open the abyss. Nothing happens apart from God's control. And when the abyss is opened, out comes smoke and locusts that have the power of scorpions. The scorpions, or the locusts, torment the people of the land, but not the ones who have been marked or sealed. The torment lasts for five months, and it's bad enough that people wish they could die. Then John describes the appearance of the locusts. We'll look at those details shortly. But the locusts torment people for five months, and finally these locusts have a king. Their king is the fallen angel who let them out of the abyss. He's called Abaddon or Apollyon. Both of those names mean the same thing. They mean destroyer. Well, as always in the book of Revelation, if we want to understand what this imagery is all about, we need to see the Old Testament background that John is referring to. There's three main passages that form the background to help us understand this vision of the locusts. I'm going to have you turn to one of them, and that is Joel chapter 1 and 2. Go ahead and turn there. And while you're turning, I'm going to give you just one other background passage. The, the one that I'll mention while you're turning is Exodus chapter 10. We see that the locusts were the eighth plague in Egypt. If you remember last week, we saw the first four trumpets. The language of those trumpet judgments is all drawn from that time period in Israel's history. And now we have locusts, which were the eighth plague in Egypt. But in Joel 1 and 2... Uh, In these chapters, Israel is warned about successive waves of locusts that come to destroy the land. We have locusts, but we actually also have a nation that's coming. Uh, The Assyrians and their army, God is going to use as a judgment on Israel. So, for instance, look at Joel 1.6 as it describes the locusts. It says, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. That language should sound familiar from what we just read in Revelation 9. And they're told that this destruction, the locusts, which are the Assyrians, is actually coming from the Lord. Look at verse 15 of Joel 1. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So it's an enemy army, but it's coming from the Lord. Now look at Joel 2. Joel 2 begins with a trumpet that announces the arrival of the judgment, the coming of the Assyrian army. Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Now remember what kind of judgments we're in. In Revelation, we're in the trumpet judgments. 
And then the invading army is described. Look at Joel 2 verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. And then in verse 5, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. And again, even though this is the Assyrian army, God says they are his army. Look at verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. And then the invitation to repent comes. Verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Then in verse 15, we hear the trumpet again. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Then God explains that once the Assyrians have done their damage, he will rescue his people and restore them. Look at what God says he'll do all the way down in verse 28. Verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. When does that happen? It happens at Pentecost. God pours out the spirit, Acts 2. And look at what else happens at that time. Verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Is this sounding like what we've seen in earlier judgments? Now look at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. God always preserves for himself a remnant. This is talking about what it's hinting at. The judgment on Jerusalem, the locusts, the invading army, is the judgment in A.D. 70. And here we're told there will be those who escape. Who is that? It's the Christians who listened to Jesus' warning. Like we saw when we were in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Luke 21. So Joel describes this invasion of locusts followed by an invasion of an army from the north, the Assyrian army. John uses the same imagery in Revelation 9 to describe this kind of double invasion too. First come the locusts, which in Revelation 9 aren't really locusts. We'll get to that in a minute. And then comes the invading army from the north. Only this time it's not the Assyrians, it's the Romans. You can turn back to Revelation 9, but I am going to share with you one last passage that's in the background, and that is Deuteronomy 28. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of highlight this because we've we've read this passage before um, in recent weeks. This is where God is giving blessings. If you do this, if you obey, then you'll receive these blessings. But if you disobey, then these curses will come. And so he's letting them know what's going to happen. Let me just summarize for you some of the curses that are going to come and have in your mind Revelation 9 as you hear this. Verse 38, locusts. Verses 28 and 29, madness and confusion of mind. Verse 34, you are driven mad. Verse 61, sickness and affliction or plagues. Verse 65, a trembling heart and a languishing soul. They want to die. Verses 66 and 67, your life hanging in doubt, dread, no assurance. 
all of those are curses that come on God's people if they don't obey his covenant. And the physical and psychological effects of the curses are exactly what we see in Revelation 9. It'll help us in Revelation 9 to understand a little bit about the bottomless pit. Another word for it is the abyss. That's literally the, the Greek word is abyssos. It shows up a couple of times in Revelation. For example, uh, here in Revelation 9, we have a significant use of it. The other major use is Revelation 20. That's a little more familiar. John writes this. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. So at some point, Satan is imprisoned in the abyss. It's a place for the imprisonment or keeping of fallen spirit beings. Excuse me. In the Old Testament, it's usually translated as the great deep. Or something similar to that. So, for example, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea, many times the Old Testament uses the language of the abyss to describe it. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Isaiah 51. Jonah speaks of the abyss as a place that is away from God's presence. I am driven away from your sight. The deep surrounded me. When Jesus casts the demons out of the Gerasene man in Luke 8, the demons begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So the abyss is a place where the demons are imprisoned and the demons hate the abyss. They beg Jesus not to be sent there. Because when they're imprisoned there, they can't do damage. They can't harm people. And here's why that's important to understand. I said a moment ago that we would talk about what the locusts really are. It's not locusts. It's something that John is describing as locusts. Just like the Assyrian army in Joel is described as locusts, here in the fifth trumpet, the locusts are an army. But it's not a human army, it's an army that comes up from the abyss. It's a demon horde. Turn with me, this is the only other place I'm going to have you turn this morning, to Matthew chapter 12. Okay, Matthew chapter 12. And while you're turning, go ahead and just keep listening, I want to to answer two questions briefly here. One, why do we say that this is demons, not locusts? And two, what do they do? What are they, what's their effect? So let me give you um, four reasons why I would say that these are demons and not locusts. Number one, they come up from the abyss. And as we've just seen, that's the place where demons are imprisoned. Number two, verse 11 of Revelation 9 tells us that they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. So these locusts have a king. But Proverbs 30, verse 27, tells us that the locusts have no king. So the locusts in Revelation 9 aren't locusts, okay? Their king is the destroyer. A third reason 
when we eventually get to Revelation 18, it'll be talking about the city of Jerusalem and it calls Jerusalem Babylon because Jerusalem has taken on the character of Babylon and her fall is being announced and the angel that announces it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. So the city of Jerusalem is at this point in history singled out as a place where demons live, where they reside. Okay? And then the fourth reason, I had you turn to Matthew chapter 12, and that's what I want you to look at now. In verse 22, in Matthew 12, Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. And when Jesus exercises this demon, then the man can speak and see. The Pharisees attribute this healing to their belief that Jesus is doing it by the power of the prince of demons. But look at how Jesus responds, beginning in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, who do your sons cast, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is saying that he's casting out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. His kingdom has come, and now he's cleaning house. Now look down at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So Jesus is casting out demons. He's cleaning house. But he warns them what is going to happen. Once he leaves, the demons that he is casting out are going to return, bringing with them many more. Note that he says this is going to happen to this evil generation. So this is AD 30, Jesus is saying this, and within a generation, 40 years, the demons will return with a great horde, many more like them. That's what this fifth trumpet judgment pictures. A great demon horde which rises from the abyss and invades the land of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem. And this happens in A.D. 70, during the final months of the Roman siege, just before the Roman army enters the city. So just like in Joel, we had a locust army and the Assyrian army, now here we have a demon army, which will be followed by the Roman army. All hell is about to break loose on Jerusalem. 
And that leads to the other question I mentioned, what do the demons do? What is the effect that they have? And I'll summarize it this way. The effect of the demons is essentially national insanity. And I want to show you this from the text and then from history. Sometimes in the past, I've showed you how a biblical author uses the tool called chiasm or chiasm. It's the Oreo Oreo cookie sandwich technique where you have two things that are parallel, similar, and then something else in between. And so the, the parallelism focuses your attention on the thing in the middle. And sometimes it's not just one set of things that's parallel. Sometimes there's a number of levels to it. That's what's going on here, and I want to show you this. So <clears throat> kind of bear with me on the details here as I show you, and I'm trying to visualize this on the screen for you as well. So on the outside here, the beginning and end of the fifth trumpet, we have Satan releasing the demons, and we have Satan as the one who is the demon king. Okay, And then the next level, scorpion torment for five months. Then we have like horses prepared for battle or like chariots and horses rushing to battle. Then we have like crowns like gold, like breastplates of iron. And then we have like faces of men like teeth of lions. And then in the middle, hair like women's hair. You can see the structure, hopefully, but this is a very strange centerpiece, isn't it? Hair like women's hair. Well, hold that thought. And let's walk through each of these briefly. So first, <clears throat> we have Satan as the demon king. He's the destroyer. He turns his destroying efforts on Jerusalem as Jesus gives him the key and allows him to do so. It's kind of like when Satan got permission from God to test Job. God let him do certain things. It was limited permission. And here in Jerusalem, the demons are limited. They can't harm the vegetation. And they can't harm anyone who is sealed on the forehead with the mark of God. Okay, remember we saw that with the 144,000. Next, <clears throat> the demons torment like scorpions for five months. They have the power to hurt people, to torment them, but not to kill them. There are a little over 1,500 species of scorpions in our world, and only a couple dozen of them are actually um, deadly, that their sting is fatal. For the most part, the vast majority just cause intense pain. And so it is with these demons. They torment, but they can't kill. Why five months? <clears throat> There's a number of suggestions here. First, the typical locust season in Israel was five months. It went from May to September. Second, if we keep in mind that these demons rise up from the abyss, you kind of have that imagery in your mind, the great deep, we might make a connection to the flood in Noah's day. That judgment on the earth lasted 150 days or five months. And the text tells us the fountains of the great deep burst forth with water. And here in Revelation 9, this five-month-long judgment also bursts forth from the abyss to cover the land. <clears throat> Probably the most specific association, though, with five months is simply what happened in history. The siege of Jerusalem lasted for five months. F.F. Bruce writes, Titus began the siege of Jerusalem in April 70. The defenders held out desperately for five months. 
So that seems to be what this is indicating. What's the effect of the demon torment? Verse 6, in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. There's a, a deep despair and insanity that comes on the people of Jerusalem. Next, these demons are like horses and chariots going to war because they're going to attack the people. Then they have crowns like gold and breastplates like iron. Iron breastplates means they're difficult to hurt, difficult to defeat, and the crown indicates their victory over the people. Then we see, so we've moved from their attire, their, their you know, war clothing, now to the, the creatures themselves, faces like men and teeth like lions. So the faces of men indicates intelligence. They're clever at what they're doing. Teeth like lions indicates ferocity. They're nasty. And then what about hair like the hair of women? Well, I think what we're supposed to understand here is the idea of perversion. Remember that the angelic beings can appear in human form. And this is a ferocious army but they take on an effeminate appearance. And it's not just that this is what the demons themselves are like, but that they provoke the people to do the same. It's a kind of moral insanity. And you'll see that in a minute as we read the history of what happens. But we have this physical and psychological attack from these demons. And they instigate fighting and violence, but also this kind of national insanity. People want to die. They despair and they turn to moral perversion. And this becomes clear as we read the historical accounts of the time. If we had time, I could read to you honestly for hours from particularly Josephus, the Jewish historian, about how awful things were in Jerusalem in these days. But I'm just going to limit it to a couple of examples. So bear with me as I read these to you. The madness of the seditious did also increase together with their famine, and both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more. Now, when he says that, you've got to understand, he's talking about a time period where the people inside Jerusalem, the Jews, have turned on each other. This is not that the Romans have entered the city at this point. This is the Jewish people breaking into factions and fighting against each other. This the next five slides or so are all one kind of paragraph from Josephus. He says this, he says, while their inclination to plunder was insatiable, as was their zeal in searching the houses of the rich, and for the murdering of the men and abusing of the women, it was sport to them. They also devoured what spoils they had taken together with their blood and indulged themselves in feminine wantonness without any disturbance till they were satiated therewith. Now listen to this. While they decked their hair and put on women's garments and were besmeared over with ointments and that they might appear very comely, they had paints under their eyes and imitated not only the ornaments but also the lusts of women and were guilty of such intolerable uncleanness that they invented unlawful pleasures of that sort. So we have transvestitism going on in the military of the Jews inside the city of Jerusalem. And thus did they roll themselves up and down the city as in a brothel house and defiled it entirely with their impure actions. Nay, while their faces looked like the faces of women, 
they killed with their right hands, and when their gait was effeminate, they presently attacked men and became warriors and drew their swords from under their finely dyed cloaks and ran everybody through whom they light upon. Like I said, it's a kind of national insanity that has gripped the Jewish people inside the city of Jerusalem. Demon-inspired. Last one. It is therefore impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly, that neither did any other city ever such, suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. That's Josephus's estimate as a Jew of what his own people did in the city of Jerusalem during these five months of the Roman siege. So in this fifth trumpet, we have a demonic invasion of the land, bringing with it internal strife and violence, physical effects, psychological effects, desire to die, moral perversion. <clears throat> the testimony of history bears out that that's what happened between April and August in Jerusalem in AD 70. Well, in the text in Revelation 9, then we have a transition. In verse 12, the first woe has passed. There are two more woes to come. So the first woe there was the fifth trumpet that we just talked about. The next two woes are the sixth and seventh trumpets that are yet to come. So let's look briefly at the sixth trumpet. It's a bit more straightforward. In this judgment, the Roman army now invades Jerusalem. The four angels who bring this judgment had been held back at the Euphrates River, but now the voice from the altar before God releases them to advance. And like the demon army, they're described like locusts. John's language is a bit more specific here. During the first trumpet, 11 times he said that something was like something else, as if he didn't know quite how to describe it. You know, demons are hard to describe, I guess. But now in the sixth trumpet, he only resorts to telling us that one thing is like another two times. And this army in the sixth trumpet actually does now kill people. The demons were not permitted to do so, though they inspired the people of Jerusalem to kill each other. But now the Roman army that is coming will advance and kill. All right, a little bit of Old Testament background. <clears throat> From Israel, the Euphrates River is to the east and it runs kind of northwest and southeast. So this is the Euphrates here. At its southern end, it merges with the Tigris River. So the Tigris kind of runs down here. Um, no, I'm sorry, over here. They merge and they drop into the Persian Gulf. Um, <clears throat> that happens just south of Basra and east of Kuwait City. As it gets to the northern end, you can see it kind of angles west. And then you see the city of Carchemish up there on the river. It's in Syria at that point, and at that point, the Euphrates River is almost directly north of Jerusalem. So in the Old Testament, threats to Israel often came from the north, from lands like Assyria. And the Euphrates was the northern border of Israel when God laid out the land boundaries. In Genesis 15, we read, The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Uh, one more example, Jeremiah 46, 
This prophecy begins concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish. So Egypt had gone up and was doing other things farther north, and then there, Carchemish on the Euphrates River there. <clears throat> the association of the Euphrates River in the north, then, for Israel is that any army sitting at the Euphrates in the north was ready to invade Israel. Here in Revelation 9, the four angels at the Euphrates have been held back, but now they're released and the armies advance on Israel. So again, we're seeing Israel's being disestablished, undone. Their borders now will not hold. There's a couple of things that I want to point out about this sixth trumpet quickly. The, the, the first one is one that we've seen several times throughout, and we're going to continue to see throughout the book of Revelation, and that's the fact of God's sovereignty and providence. Look again at verse 15 of Revelation 9. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. This judgment is planned out by God down to the very hour that it occurs. Next, notice that there's another pattern here that we've seen several times before. It's the hear, then see pattern. Remember, John heard of the Lion of Judah, but when he looked, he saw the Lamb. Two different things, but they turn out to be the same. Later in the book, he hears the announcement about the bride, the wife of the Lamb, but then when he looks, what he is shown is the city. Both of them represent the church, the dwelling place of God. Well, here, in verses 13 to 15, it sounds like this is God's army being released. The voice commanding this comes from the altar before the throne. In verse 16, John says, The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The number is 200 million. For perspective, that was the population of the entire United States in 1967. The whole country. So is this literally the number of the Roman troops? Well, no. The population of the entire Roman Empire at this time was around 75 million, and some estimates of the population of the entire world was 200 million at that time in history. But it's giving us an impression of invincibility. This army is too massive to be defeated. Then John looks, verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. And he gives a description of, then of the army that he sees. <clears throat> so it sounds like it's God's army, but now as he looks, John's description seems to emphasize what's coming from their mouths. He points out that fire and smoke and sulfur come out of their mouths multiple times. And that sounds a lot like the description of Leviathan in Job 41. Let me just read part of this. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes, his breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. I think, by the way, that this is where our old stories of fire-breathing dragons come from. They're based in reality. We may not have them still today, but I think they really do exist or did exist. 
And John probably wants us to see in this advancing army a deadly and threatening power like Leviathan. But it's God's army. Remember, that's what he heard. So this is a deadly power, but it's under God's sovereign control. He's using it for his purposes. The Roman historian Tacitus, at one point, details the strength of the Roman army throughout the empire. He gives the number of Roman legions that were stationed in different places. Included in that, he writes, from the Syrian marches right up to the Euphrates, four sufficed for the territories enclosed in that enormous reach of ground. In other words, there were four Roman legions stationed at the Euphrates River in Syria, north of Israel. And that's the very place where these four angels are said to be held in Revelation 9 until they're given permission to advance. And the reality of the Roman invasion that's described here matches well with history too. It was brutal. We're told at this time, the Romans were crucifying the Jews in the region at a rate of 500 per day. Now imagine if you're in Jerusalem and you go up on the city walls and you look out to the north and you see the Roman army advancing. The description that we have here would probably fit quite well with what you were seeing. The last two verses of Revelation chapter 9 give us the result of these first six trumpet judgments. Did the people repent? Did they look at the devastation of the judgments that God was sending and cry out to him for mercy? Did they recognize the error of their ways? No, not at all. John tells us that those who were not killed in these judgments did not repent. Let me note four things about that lack of repentance. First, in verse 20, they don't repent of the work of their hands. They've crafted their own sinfulness. They've invented new ways to disobey God. They have an alternate form of morality, the work of their hands, but God is the one who's the standard. Second, in verse 20, they do not repent of their false worship. They worship demons. They worship idols of metal and wood and stone. They're Demon-inspired national insanity results in false worship. Third, in verse 21, they don't repent of the murderers, excuse me, the murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, or theft. That, all, that list aligns perfectly with what Jesus talked about with the church in Thyatira when they were tolerating Jezebel and her teachings. It shows rebellion against God's law. And finally, Note this one thing, they refused to repent despite the fact that they experienced these judgments. We tend to think that people would repent if given the opportunity. I mean, if you could go to hell, wouldn't the people there repent if they had the opportunity? And the answer is no. Repentance is a gift of God. For men to repent, their eyes must be opened and their hearts must be changed by God's Spirit. John Calvin wrote in the Institutes, now it ought to be a fact beyond controversy that repentance not only constantly follows faith but is also born of faith. See, 
the judgments of God alone are not enough to bring about repentance. The Spirit of God must bring about new life and faith in order for there to be repentance. And yet, ultimately, the judgments of God should serve as a call for any who survive them to repentance. As I thought this week about the national insanity in Jerusalem in AD 70 that is hinted at in the text and is described by Josephus, the despair, the moral perversion that seems to grip the people, I couldn't help but think of our culture today. Over the last two years, suicide rates have skyrocketed. We have moral perversion on a scale that most of us never imagined. And it's even specifically manifesting itself in the perverted confusion of genders. We're destroying ourselves. And I'm not saying that God is judging us in exactly the same way that he's judging Israel and that sometime within the next five months we can expect a military invasion. I'm not making a prophecy about that this morning, okay? But what I am saying is this kind of perversion is demonic in nature. It's an utter rejection of God's design and God's law. And God will not allow that kind of rebellion to go on indefinitely. We could spend a lot of time this morning talking about our national insanity because every week there are many, many examples of it. But I want to actually turn our attention in a slightly different direction this morning. In Luke 13, Jesus has been teaching and people raise an issue that they want Jesus to comment on. And here's what it says. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is specifically speaking here to the Jewish people of his day, warning them of the coming judgment. He says to them, when you see these horrible things happen, you shouldn't just wonder why God lets these things happen, but you should instead realize that you deserve God's judgment yourself. So repent. And instead of just thinking this morning about how awful our national insanity and moral perversion is, and it is, this morning I want to call you to repent. As you look at the horrible things going on in our world, this judgment that God has allowed to progress in our nation, let it be an opportunity for you to examine your own condition before God. King David serves as a great example of repentance. David was a murderer and an adulterer whom God called to repent. Psalm 51 is his expression of repentance. And in that psalm, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
commenting on that, Sinclair Ferguson says that a broken and contrite spirit is one in which self-sufficiency and self-defense has been broken down. A repentant person realizes they don't have the strength or goodness in themselves which they need. They must find it in God. And they don't make excuses or defenses or blame other people for their failings. They recognize their responsibility before God. Thomas Watson describes what this kind of biblical repentance looks like. He says, true repentance consists of two things, humility and transformation. Humility means your hard heart has been broken. You see that you have broken God's law and you feel true sorrow for it. But that sorrow doesn't bring complete repentance. He points out, for example, that even Judas felt sorrow for what he had done. But for repentance to be complete, there must also be transformation. And transformation means change. His mind is changed. He thinks differently. There's a change of judgment. He values things the way that God does, the the repentant person. Not only is his mind changed, but his affections are changed. He comes to hate his sin. He comes to love what is good. Not only are his mind and his affections changed, but his works are changed. Picture a fountain that feeds a stream of water. A changed heart will flow out in changed actions. He'll no longer habitually practice sin. He'll break it off in his life. He'll turn toward God. He'll come to obey God's law. I'd like to finish with something that Joel Beakey shares in one of his books. He's summarizing what the Puritan Thomas Boston wrote about motives for repentance. Why should you repent? What motive do you have for repenting? And he gives eight reasons. First, God's command obligates you to repent. That's reason enough. God is, a, is the, the, the highest authority. He commands it. We should do it. Number two, God's mercies lead you to repent. God's mercies are new every morning. He's constantly showing you grace and mercy. That should lead us to repentance. Number three, the evil of sin should drive us to repent. Sin is like a worm on a hook for a fish. It's bait. There's pleasure for a moment, but there's pain and difficulty afterwards. Number four, the inevitability of death should urge us to repent. Are you prepared for your death? Once you die, it's too late to repent and to find the forgiveness of sins. Number five, the justice of God's judgment demands that you repent. God is the perfect judge. If Christ returned today and you faced judgment, what would be the verdict? Number six, the sufferings of Christ should draw you to repent. When you look at the cross, when you see what Christ has done, you see his love for you as well as God's wrath against sin, that should drive you to repent. Number seven, the wrong of your sins against God should move you to repent. Sin is battling against who God is. It's a fight against his holiness and his laws. It grieves him. And number eight, the consequences of whether you repent should convince you to repent. If you don't repent, scripture says, you will perish. 
It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so Boston, in summary, says this. He says, there is mercy for you if you will repent and come to Christ. Good news, sinners, if you repent, all your sins shall be blotted out. You shall be embraced in the wide and warm arms of mercy. And I'll just finish with these words from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Lord, this morning as we hear these words from Isaiah, this invitation to repent, I pray that each one of us would be able to rightly examine our heart before you. And for those of us who are believers, who are part of your family, I pray that if there's sin in our lives that we need to repent of, that we would do that, that we would return to you. We know who you are. We know that you're a God of great grace and mercy and that you offer forgiveness to us. And so we pray that, that you would forgive us of our sin, that we would return to you and be restored. And for any here this morning who have never turned to you in faith, I pray that these motives to repent would would draw them up short, would help them to realize this is not something to put off. This is something that I need to think about. This is something that I need to, to, to respond to. What Christ has done on the cross is that he has taken the place of his people, taken their sins on himself and paid the penalty of those sins and then given them his righteousness. So for any who are believers, who, who are those who have faith in Jesus, our sins are paid for and we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. We pray that we would live in such a way that proclaims that we believe it to be true. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.